another episode of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast. I'm your host, Zach Schmall. The Five Things I Read This Week podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find the podcast on iTunes, on the Google Play Store, or right on the website, enteringthepublicsquare.com. And first of all, happy belated Thanksgiving. I'm actually recording this on Thanksgiving, but since you won't hear it until Saturday, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I hope you had a wonderful day. I hope I have a wonderful day. I guess we'll find out about that in the future. And I hope you enjoyed some time with family, friends, and really just we're thankful for what you have and we're actually thankful to someone. Because it's really awkward to have a Thanksgiving and talk about being thankful, but have no one to be thankful to. So I hope you had that um, fulfilling, that ability to be fulfilled and complete the cycle of thankfulness. I'm going to start off, though, with an article for you. It was written on November 21st on NPR by Jessica Taylor. America said to pass the turkey and not the politics at Thanksgiving this year. So there's an NPR, PBS, Marist poll that um, came out just before the holiday and 58% of people were dreading having to talk about politics around the dinner table. Just 31% said they were eager to discuss the latest news. Now, this is a change from last year. So this year, keep in mind, it's 58% who don't want to talk about it, 31% who want to talk about it. Last year, 43% were eager to talk about it, and 53% were dreading talking about it. So what changed in one year is kind of remarkable. If we consider last year at Thanksgiving, the election had just finished, and apparently people wanted to talk about it then, but in a year, all of a sudden, what, 12% have decided I'm not eager anymore. Either they dread it, or they've moved into some, I suppose it was a third choice, they don't report, because those numbers, 58 and 31, obviously don't add up to 100. Um, but if we, if we think about what's going on then in our, uh, in our culture, people are hiding away from having difficult conversations because they don't know how to have them and still enjoy time with the people who might be at the Thanksgiving dinner table with them. Uh, consider, you know, if it would ruin an entire, apparently, holiday experience having to talk about politics. So we're not going to talk about it. and. I find that kind of sad. Some of the best conversations I've ever had with people are about religion, are about politics, are about those things we're not supposed to talk about in polite company because they make people mad. But, you know, I find that when we actually talk about these issues, number one, we find out we have more common ground than we think, which is really important. Um, fact number two we hear the other side, and we don't straw man. 
I mean, that's a huge problem today, right? Oh, all Trump voters believe this. All Democrats believe that. All never-Trump Republicans believe this. And, you know, that's just not true. I, I've found, as I talk to more and more people, if we actually talk about an issue, we tend to agree a lot of times, even if our political positions are different, we can find some areas of agreement. Obviously not everything. That's why we have different ideas. But only through that process of talking are you able to actually, you know, come to that understanding and that mutual, um, you know, balance, really. So, you know, please keep talking about controversial ideas. Don't shy away from them. Um, yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, people are just becoming slightly oversensitive and don't want to have the conversations, they'd rather blot it out, and our system works on information, our republic thrives on information, so let's keep it going. Uh, this article was from NPR, written by Jessica Taylor, Americans say to pass the turkey, not the politics, at Thanksgiving this year, and it was on November 21, 2017. And uh, keeping on the, uh, the Thanksgiving theme, I have an article for you from the Daily Signal. It was also on November 21st, written by John York. Meet the woman who helped make Thanksgiving a U.S. holiday. So, back in the 19th century, there was this lady, Sarah Josepha Hale. She was a writer, and she really petitioned hard to make Thanksgiving a holiday. According to this article, she wrote thousands of letters and editorials promoting the day of Thanksgiving before Abraham Lincoln adopted the idea in 1863. Between George Washington in 1789 and Lincoln in 1893, no president had done anything like that. Although apparently many states had their own holiday, and so uh, Hale really decided to write all these editorials um, because it was so important for her to have Americans come together for a day of being thankful. And a lot of her um, reasoning came back to we celebrate our founding, we celebrate the 4th of July, and Thanksgiving, as the article said, is an important supplement to that. Um, in 1853, she wrote, the 4th of July is the exponent of independence and civil freedom. Thanksgiving Day is a national pledge of Christian faith in God, acknowledging him as a dispenser of blessing. And then York goes on to write, Non-denominational faith in a providential God was a prominent component of Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation, as it had been in Washington's first proclamation, and it has remained so in nearly every presidential proclamation since. <clears throat> and then Hale writes again that this idea of being thankful to God um, will help bring together a nation. She wrote, everything that contributes to bind us in one vast empire together to quicken the sympathy that makes us feel from the icy north to the sunny south that we are one family, each a member of a great and free nation, 
not merely the unit of a remote locality is worth being cherished, or is worthy of being cherished. Now, this is important, and this is something I kind of alluded to at the beginning here. If we have a day of Thanksgiving, we must be thankful to something. Am I thankful to God? Am I thankful to Allah? Am I thankful to Zeus? I mean, if I'm acknowledging that I'm thankful for what I have, I'm not thankful to myself. That's bizarre and doesn't make sense. I must be thankful to someone or something else. And of course, the question is, who or what am I thankful for? Or thankful to? And, you know, this narrative of coming together um, under this thankful umbrella, if you will, um, is significant. Because even if we don't agree on all of our religion or all of our politics or all of our understanding of really just about anything. We can, if we can come together and be thankful at the same time, that really is, it's powerful. And you see that in our society today too, where people truly are falling apart from each other. They don't enjoy each other's company that much. They, like that last article, they can't even talk politics. Why? Because it stresses them out. They dread it. Having a unified nation requires a lot of times people sharing cultural norms. That helps bind together a nation. And no, I'm not calling for a state religion. Obviously not. I've written against that multiple times. I'm just saying that there is power in a group of people who all believe the same thing, or who all at least are willing to understand that, you know, we need to be thankful to someone. And even if they understand God slightly differently, you know, our Catholics, our Protestants, our Eastern Orthodox, we're slightly different in our denominational specifics, but coming together to thank God is it's powerful. It gives you a greater appreciation rather than being thankful to something you can't define. And it makes me think of a G. H. Chesterton quote. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. And that really is the the bottom line here. And that's what uh, Miss Hale clearly understood that we need this holiday of being thankful to tie us all together. It's healthy for our country to recognize everything we have isn't ours, and we've been blessed immensely. So this article was in the Daily Signal, written by John York, on November 21st, 2017. Meet the woman who helped make Thanksgiving a U.S. holiday. Now, going to a New York Times article from David Brooks, on November 20th, 2017, how evil is tech? And it, it's kind of interesting because we talk about 
taxing. It's kind of a trendy thing. It's really cool. We all want to work at Google. Uh, we all... Yeah, there's a whole lot of all the awesome stuff they make. We love tech. Make more, make more, make more. And David Brooks points out some significant things. First, it's harming our young people. Social media is wrecking people, obviously. People are lonelier, even though they have more friends. Cyberbullying is a huge problem. And that leads to the second critique, that the tech industry is doing this on purpose. They know that you want friends online, so we're going to kind of feed into your emotions and play with you so that you have to check your Facebook. Why? Oh, because I might miss something. You know, the fear of missing out. People talk about that kind of in jest. But the only way that tech companies make money is if you come to their website. <clears throat> and if they want to make more money, they have to keep you coming back. Now, that's significant because his third critique is that these are basically monopolies. There are other social networks, but Facebook is really where it's at. There are other search engines. Google's really where it's at. Apple, I mean, they don't quite have a market. A monopoly on, like, the cell phone or the PC market or even the music player market anymore. But they have a lot of power. Amazon, we all buy our stuff. I just bought presents on Amazon the other night. I mean, if it's huge, now we have a company that is doing bad things, has motive to do bad things, and nobody can stop them because they're so big. So that really... It, it really... It makes me nervous about the power of big tech. And... Here's a quote from uh, from Brooks near the end of his article. The, uh, Imagine if instead of claiming to offer us the best things in life, tech merely saw itself as providing efficiency devices. Its innovations can save us time on lower-level tasks so we can get offline and there experience the best things in life. So, you know, instead of getting wrapped into these machines that we hope more and more to and may not have our best interests at heart? What if we use technology for the good thing that it is? And I love technology. I'm a techie, and I think that it it has a lot of power in our day-to-day life, and I don't want to sound like I, I hate technology or anything like that, but if you consider the... Uh, it's better to be with real people. It's better to be excited about seeing my friend in person than, you know, sending a Snapchat. If we had this perspective that those things are better, it would probably be a happier place for all of us. So I would check out this article, How Evil Is Tech, written by David Brooks in the New York Times on November 20, 2017. Moving on then, I have an article from Intellectual Takeout. It was also written on November 20th by Devin Foley. Progress comes through conflict. And he he talks about how there's always conflict in the world. We always talk about, you know, it, you think about Imagine, right, by John Lennon. There's no more war. There's no more fighting. Why? Because we've reached this dream, utopia, awesome place where the world is as one, you know. 
and it it's significant because why do we really even and this is a quote from Foley's article it is an odd thing about man even at peace we need outlets for competition and conflict we entertain ourselves endlessly with the two but always it seems the siren hall of peace and utopia are there our times certainly are no stranger to it and so we have this conflict right we all want peace and i think peace is a great thing obviously i don't want people having to shoot and fight each other i mean who who would and yet we we seem to thrive on like when we have conflict stuff starts to happen change happens through conflict and you know it, this is his final question in the article but what is it about man that compels us to be so unsatisfied with peace and tranquility while at the same time often arguing that's what we seek to feel human must we have something to fight against and that's fascinating he points out earlier in the article a lot of times people who talked about utopia i'm going to make a perfect state it became horrible it became a disaster uh national socialism in germany marxism in the soviet union they promoted these utopian visions and they were awful objectively some of the worst places in history certainly in modern history and so what is it about human nature that provides us with this this conflict between we want peace but at the same time i mean think about it we even if we're at peace what do americans like to watch what do we pay for on tv boxing ufc football even any sport really is a competition not violent but it's a conflict a competition and we love it i mean out of sports i play power soccer which is um a wheelchair sport and we play soccer on the basketball court four on four i love the competition something in me likes to have a team to go against i like to hit the ball on my own too that's kind of fun but it's a whole lot more fun to have someone to compete with and so you elevate that to the international scale do countries which are led by people and they're human like i am do they have that desire for competition and conflict and then they push to apply it to their own domain <laughs> and is that maybe why we see this if we think about kind of this whole idea of our fallen nature it makes sense from a christian worldview we want peace because deep down we know we were created for something better Adam and Eve were put in a perfect garden they had free will in that garden now what did they do in that garden they ruined it they <clears throat> unfortunately made a horrible decision that has trickled down forever since the fall 
has had a ripple effect on the entire world ever since the beginning. And so there's probably where that desire for conflict comes in. You see, I mean, Cain and Abel right away. You see murder. Abel was murdered by Cain right away. That desire <coughs> is about as human as it gets. And why did Cain murder Abel? God liked Abel's sacrifice and didn't like Cain's, and so he got jealous and he killed his brother right from the beginning. So this question by Foley here is really a good one. To feel a human, must we have something to fight against? And I would argue from a Christian worldview, yes. We do. Because that desire for conflict is embedded in us, in our sin nature. We want to fight with others. We, we remember peace, and we want peace, and we aspire to it. But deep down, our sin nature is going to mess it up. Inevitably. The only way we are going to have peace is in our eternal home with God. Until then, I think fully expression is the good one. We're going to keep feeling human. We're going to keep having conflict. And even though conflict does at times push us ahead, and sometimes it does help us find truth, the fact that we have to have the conflict over what truth is tells me that our world is not a perfect place. And we're going to have that imperfection literally until the end. So this article is on intellectual takeout. Uh, Progress comes through conflict, written by Devin Foley on November 20th of this year. And finally, I have an article for you from the Gospel Coalition. Um, it was written by Mark Michael Kruger on November 18th. And it's how the early Christians were odd, too. Um, you know, ever since DC talk in the 90s, we talk about being a Jesus freak. Um, they have, um, Russell Moore writes a lot about this and the, the freakishness of Christianity, that, yes, we actually believe in a man who rose from the dead. And people are like, whoa, you're crazy. And we're pretty much like, yep, that's what we believe. And it can be disheartening. I mean, we all want to fit in, right? Um, and, you know, our culture isn't always the most friendly to our Christian faith. And so, as Kruger writes here, when Christians feel isolated and alone, it's helpful to remember this experience is nothing new for God's people. Christians have been viewed as cultural misfits from the beginning. And the reasons for this assessment have changed little over the last two millennia. In the second century, four features of Christianity stood out to the Romans as peculiar, if not offensive. So here's what we're going to... I'm just going to run through these four for you. So the first one was their worship. And they worshipped exclusively. They only worshipped Jesus. So they didn't have the whole pantheon of gods that the Romans had. Um, you didn't... You know bow to the emperor either. Um, and the Christians would not follow the cultural norm of the day. And why wouldn't they do that? Because they knew they had to follow Jesus. And today, I think we have a similar thing. Why don't we bow to the cultural norms of our day and just surrender all our beliefs in the name of 
oh, being politically correct, and oh, all paths lead to God, that's fine. Why don't we bow to that? Because we can't. We're Christians. We can't do that. So that's point number one. Point number two, uh, Christian doctrine. The Christians suffered intellectual persecution. Um, I mean, people thought they were crazy. Like, they can't work crazy. Um, particularly the Incarnation. And so the Romans, you know, they didn't get it. They didn't get the Incarnation. They didn't get, why do you worship someone that we crucified? Crucifixion was a bad deal. And it was shameful. You didn't want to be associated with crucifixion. So why would you follow someone who's supposedly so great, who got himself, you know, crucified? Can't you find someone better and stronger? And Kruger writes, the likes of Lucian, Galen, Fronto, and Celsus offer scathing critiques of this new religion, Mahayat's teaching, as well as its crucified founder. So, we hear that people think we're crazy for worshiping Jesus today. Well, they thought they were crazy back then, too. Christian behavior. So, back in the day, for the Romans, like, they really didn't understand the sexual ethics of Christians. In Rome, it was normal to have prostitutes and multiple women around, and Christians just wouldn't do it. And the, uh, the Christians took a different tack. Written by Tertullian, he wrote, One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us but our wives. And so Kruger asks, why does he say it? Because in the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't unusual for people to share their spouses. And so, again, even their behavior, the whole church saying, oh, this is fine, this is acceptable, you can share your wives if you want, and the Christians saying, no, marriage is sacred, ordained by God, in the Garden of Eden between one man and one woman. And as we, as we look back, then, you know, it, it, Kruger says it wasn't just what Christians believed that made them unusual, it was how they behaved. So, they believed crazy things, now they're doing crazy things. And then, the final thing, is that Christians were committed to scripture and holy writing. And, back in the day, Kruger writes that Really, it was unusual in the second century for religions to have so many written texts. They didn't really hear so much. Uh, it didn't feel like a religion that they normally um, that they normally understood. Normally, religions involved temples and sacrifices and all these other things, but they didn't have scriptures. And so, early Christians were very committed to the scripture. You can look at all the councils where they tried to determine, where they narrowed down the New Testament canon. And the significant part there is that it was really, uh, it's remarkable how consistent the councils were. And they liked their books because they understood that the books were communicating the Word of God to them from a much more, a much closer past than we have it today, but it was the same truth. So. We have these Christians who are even worshiping in ways that 
they really don't yet. So, you know, we have this kind of setup here where Christians are weird. They worship only one God, which is weird. They believe crazy things. They believe God rose from the dead. They don't go along with our cultural practices, particularly about marriage, but also, I, I assume you could extend this point to almost anything else, because Tertullian, like he points out, we didn't hesitate to share with each other, which seems like he's contrasting from a more selfish society where people did not want to share with each other, and then they read it from a book, which was weird. So today, as we're Christians, and people think we're weird for what we believe and what we hold to, let them. It's not going to change. And really, I mean, Jesus promised that. We shouldn't be surprised that the world's not really going to understand us, and they're probably not going to like us very much. Uh, we get comfortable in hoping that they will, but quite frankly, they just haven't ever, um, and probably never will, until we have a new heaven and a new earth, of course. So, there's the five things I read this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Um, I hope I continue to have a happy Thanksgiving as I'm recording this bright and early on Thanksgiving morning. And I will catch up with you next week. Have a great one, everybody.